The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Puffin Books have employed something called sensitivity readers or sensitivity readers. It's joyless. It's absolutely joyless. It's wrong and it's cultural vandalism. It's woke totalitarianism, isn't it, really? It's grotesque censorship. The whole point of groupthink is to stop challenge, to stop debate. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's still February, but spring is in the air. The snowdrops are abundant, daffodils are blooming, and your law co-pilot has even spotted some economic green shoots. <laughs> Rishi Sunak's under huge pressure on small boats, on tax, and above all on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Can the Prime Minister fix what's long been dubbed the vexed question of Northern Ireland? And as for trying to understand the politics of that part of the United Kingdom... As a signatory to the Good Friday Agreement once told me, Alison, when it comes to Northern Ireland, if you're not confused, you don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> You've written some storming pieces in Wednesday's Telegraph. Link in the show notes to this episode on primary schools on Shamima Begum and the one that really made me punch the air in agreement on Roald Dahl. Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker from James and the Giant Peach, they're meant to be scary. And the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory character, Augustus Gloop, is meant to be fat. How have we got to the point, Alison, when a revered publisher thinks it makes commercial and moral sense to start messing with some of the most loved and the most effective literature ever written? Very good question, co-pilot. I thought we'd just begin, actually, with a little quote for the week. Every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process continues day by day, minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. They'll be coming for George Orwell 1984 soon, won't they, Halligan? My God. It's madness, Alison. It's absolute madness. Puffin is a very serious organization mm. and of course you know they're not here to represent themselves but they have obviously been quoted in the press and in the telegraph you and me we're professional writers we both grew up on some of the best literature the world has ever known including Roald Dahl yeah as you said he's a complex person there are many things you can object to him individually about but it's about the literature what are they doing a Telegraph investigation, in fact, revealed at the weekend that Puffin Books have employed something called sensitivity readers or sensitivity readers. <laughs> they used to be called just old-fashioned censors. And the idea seems to have been to make the books of Roald Dahl less potentially offensive to a modern readership. Although, as you say, Liam, being offensive and uproariously funny and anarchic, I mean, Roald Dahl is an anarchist, basically. And what children respond to him, I think, is to the boy man in him, the sort of craziness. My kids were huge fans when they were little. I'm sure yours were as well. And they love it because he breaks taboos. And in fact, the irony here is that Roald Dahl was once a great favourite of liberal parents because he was very child-centred, quite a kind of renegade, really. And 
one of the best-selling children's authors of all time. Now, hundreds of changes appear to have been made to classics such as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Witches and Matilda, as you said at the top, Liam, Augustus Gloop, The Glutton. I don't suppose you're allowed to have a glutton anymore now, are you? The world's getting fatter and we're not <laughs> even allowed to use the word fat. No, that's true. Exactly. It's the nation's children break the scales. We're not allowed to talk fat. And yes, the characters aren't allowed to be ugly anymore. So Miss Trunchbull, fantastic creation in Matilda, has lost her large horsey face. The colours black and white have been removed, even when it's a black tractor. It's not allowed to be black anymore. And you like this one. In The Enormous Crocodile, We Eat Little Boys and Girls has been changed to We Eat Little Children because clearly, Liam, gender stereotyping is obviously the major concern rather than <laughs> being eaten by a crocodile. So, yes, the whole point of Roald Dahl is his work is full of grotesques, very rude books. Children love them. They do have a very powerful moral vision as well, a contemplation of good versus evil. And if we think, Liam, of any of the great children's books, really, from, I don't suppose you can't really say that Oliver Twist is a children's book, but Alice in Wonderland, they're full of terrors. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. And what great writers like Dahl do is they scare children. They certainly scared mine. And then their words cast a spell that helps children to master those fears. And we can see, can't we, co-pilot, that millions of kids have grown up pretty well after being exposed to the traumas of words such as ladies and gentlemen. That's now been cancelled. Now you've got to say folks. Ugh, folks. So yes, what are they doing? It's woke totalitarianism, isn't it, really? It's grotesque censorship. Sir Salman Rushdie, who knows a bit about suffering for his art, he's condemned it outright, says it's outright censorship. The publisher should be ashamed of themselves. There's been pushback from Roald Dahl's French and Dutch publishers saying that they would not be making those changes and reducing the power of the words. You've got to love the Dutch, haven't you? You've, You've got, got to love, got the, to Dutch. love the Dutch. <laughs> Whatever the English to be English enough, the Dutch come in and remind <laughs> us how to be English. <laughs> that's very, very well observed. I think that's absolutely true. And as has been noted, of course, that the sort of woke sickness, really, the self-hatred, the critical race theory, we'll talk about that a bit later. But this is a disease of the Anglosphere. People trying to change human behaviour or actually to change the reporting of human behaviour. The slogan of these people is, be kind. So let's remove all the horrible words and then the world will be a sweeter place. It doesn't work like that. But they don't want this leftist virtuosi. They don't want children to find politically incorrect or downright truthful things about the human condition. They don't want to find them entertaining. Instead, they're being force-fed empathetic books about race equality and caring and emotional intelligence, dreary, pious tomes, which we can be absolutely sure would have been anathema to Roald Dahl. It's just so psychologically and tactically inept. There's this thing called the internet. Kids can see pretty much what they want anyway. <laughs> yes. Where does this end? Does the great literature of the world, does all human artistic achievement become a constantly moving, ever-edited piece as we go forward in life? 
constantly apologising for our previous transgressions. It's just completely and utterly mad. And I think it really represents a total loss of confidence, frankly, Alison, among people of our age, the people Mm. who are currently meant to be in charge. We're so concerned about upsetting young people and then barking at us over the kitchen table that we don't push back and say, actually, you're 15 and you're talking rubbish. You know, sometimes you need to tell kids that they're wrong kindly and in a loving way. But you have to put lines in the sand. There are things that are true and there are things that are not true. And it seems completely crazy to me that Puffin would employ these sensitivity readers in their late teens or early 20s. And it was an excellent piece. We can't congratulate the journalist who wrote it in The Telegraph because she, if indeed it was a she, was anonymous. But it's Mm. worth reading. We'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. But we shouldn't ask for the permission of people aged 15 to 25 to do things, okay? We should consider them and they should be able to do things, but it's not as if they are always right. They're often not right, actually. And why should we change the literature that's already been written, that reflects the time in which it was written? That's the whole point of literature, both fiction and factual history Mm. as well. It's just this endless apology for being who we are. And this really strikes me as one of the great issues of our age, that we so lack confidence as a Western generation, people roughly of our age, Alison, we can see that the West is declining in power. We can see that our children aren't going to be as well off as their parents. We can see that society is going through some tough times. But think about what previous generations went through. We've never actually had it so easy And yet we find problems where there are none. And I think this is reflected in this absurd decision, frankly, by a mainstream, highly revered publisher, one of the most august and reputable publishers in the world to do this. What a massive, massive error of judgment. I agree. And I said in the column, really, that the trouble is these kids are, they're sensitivity readers. They're not sensitivity writers. They can't write. They don't have an ear. Now, Roald Dahl, I think, rewrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as he was going along. He rewrote and rewrote because he was reading it aloud to his son. And the level of attention to detail and making the words sing, that's what he could do. You know, I read my columns out loud, Alison, once I read <laughs> yeah, Or at I... least I would if the news desk wasn't screaming at me, <laughs> where is your copy? <laughs> Sorry. No, we could start reading them aloud, <laughs> the marvellous poetry of The Economist. But listen to this, this is one change to the witches, OK? And poor Roald Dahl must be rolling in his grave. So Dahl's witches are all, all wear wigs because they're bald. And what Dahl wrote was, you can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet just try it and see what happens okay so that's funny and puffin's new more accessible less offensive version reads besides there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs and there is certainly nothing wrong with that i mean this is the sort of health and safety sanitized version i mean the kids are laughing at the idea of going around and pulling wigs off witches heads i mean oh it's joyless it's absolutely joyless it is absolutely and, joyless and it's cowardly and it's wrong and it's cultural vandalism in my view this sort of central point you were making here so actually they're censoring Roald Dahl who you know is a great author you cannot censor literature it's a slippery slope meanwhile that same mentality 
is sending into schools this absolutely sort of obnoxious propaganda, primary schools teaching children it's possible to be born in the wrong body. There was a picture of a bookshelf in a primary school in rural Cambridgeshire and the head of English had been told off by some sort of diversity visitor and every book on this shelf in a primary school was basically the colour of your skin, racism, why it's horrible to be white. And nearly all of the kids in the primary school were from Eastern Europe. This is the level of ludicrousness we're having. I mean, we can laugh, but I think it's profoundly dangerous now. I think what's going on in schools... I think we would hardly believe the propaganda that small children are being exposed to by the modern day censorous witches. And I think it would make a really good story for Roald Dahl, actually. You know, I think he would be utterly, utterly appalled. So as we said, this highly divisive critical race theory, aggressive trans ideology being embedded in the school curriculum. And I think it's high time, actually, that the government fought back. Talking of economic poetry, <laughs> see what I did there. Shall I compare thee to an OBR forecast, Halligan? <laughs> <laughs> Thou art more accurate. <laughs> and more honest. So there was a really interesting number that came out. We specialise, don't we, Alison, in getting little nuggets of news and yeah. highlighting them here on the Rocket of Right Thinking. And there's a number that came out earlier this week. It's called the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI. These are preliminary unofficial GDP numbers. PMI is a long-standing, very authoritative survey of the sentiment of business leaders, company owners who fill in questionnaires about how they're feeling, how they're investing, what's happening in the supply chain. And the PMI numbers are a very, very accurate indication of where GDP is going to go. And we've been told for months, haven't we, that the UK is the slowest growing economy in the G7 and it's all because of Brexit mm. and so on. Now, the PMI number, the latest one, showed that so far in February that the economy is actually growing, which means we would have dodged recession. And that's very, very interesting. The PMI reading, where readings above 50 indicate growth, was actually 53. And a survey of independent economists was predicting it would be 47, which, of course, would suggest economic contraction. So it was far, far better than the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom, often driven by broadcast and media coverage and what official bodies are saying. And at the same time, Alison, and this is the kind of good news about the economy and the public finances that Jeremy Hunt really doesn't want to hear because it puts pressure on him. Yes. The OBR released numbers for January that showed that the budget surplus in January was around five to six billion pounds. And they were predicting pretty much no budget surplus. And compared to forecast they made in February, overall in this tax year, the OBR's forecasts on the public finances have been £30 billion too pessimistic, right? And what this means is there's quite a lot more fiscal headroom than the Chancellor previously thought going on OBR forecasts. And that puts huge pressure on him because then the public sector unions 
will say, oh, you've got a bit of extra money. You can give us some of that money to solve mm. these strikes. Strikes, yeah. And then the Bank of England will say, oh, there might be a bit more government spending coming down the track. Maybe we need to raise interest rates a little bit more. We're in the realms of policymaking by forecast, Alison, as we've often discussed here on Planet Normal. But the actual numbers that are coming out, this PMI number, the official government number for the budget deficit in January, are actually far, far better than we've been led to believe. And look, I talked about green shoots at the top. This is a really tough time for the economy. The cost of living crisis is ongoing. Companies are unfortunately failing all the time, even though they've tried really hard to stay alive during lockdown and billions of pounds of public money were spent keeping companies alive during lockdown. This is why now so many MPs are calling on Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt not to raise corporation taxes. We've been arguing here on Planet Normal from 19 to 25% this April. We've got the budget on the 15th of March, where some backbenchers are now telling me they think the Treasury may freeze corporation tax, which would be a huge vault fast. So there is lots of difficulty out there on the economy. We are by no means out of the economic woods. But there really are green shoots. There really are signs of improvement. And I don't see those signs of improvement being talked about on television in particular nearly enough. Liam, you've also rather excitingly been interviewing Home Secretary Suella Braverman for GB News. That's an exclusive interview. Something that jumped out at me regarding the Home Office was that Matthew Rycroft, he's the permanent secretary, so he's Suella's most senior civil servant, he had omitted illegal migration from the department's key priority list. Instead, this Matthew Rycroft said that the Home Office mission was to expand global talent via visa routes, address violence against women and help victims of the Windrush scandal. Now, Suella Braverman has absolutely sort of staked her position on stopping the small boats. Did you talk to her about that? I did. So this is a GB News exclusive. It's Swella Braverman's first television interview as Home Secretary. I talked with her for half an hour in her office with some of her officials present. Planet Normal listeners can see the full interview on the GB News YouTube channel or on the GB News app. We've also put it out on television, but the full 22-minute version that we've cut is available on our YouTube channel and app. And we did talk an awful lot about small boats. We talked a lot mm. about the Northern Ireland Protocol. On small boats, Swalla Braverman is saying it may be that we don't need to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. And indeed, the government is putting legislation before Parliament to tackle illegal immigration that doesn't involve leaving ECHR. But she wants to keep that option in reserve if she needs to. And she argues passionately in the interview why, as a trained lawyer, a former barrister, of course, in both mm. the UK and the US, she passed the New York bar exams as well, she feels that it is justifiable to leave ECHR if we need to, despite the political optics. Interesting to see if the Prime Minister's got the stomach for that. And on Northern Ireland, Alison, Suella Braverman, of course, resigned as a Brexit minister in mm. 2018 over Theresa May's Brexit deal, particularly on this point of Northern Ireland, she said to me, look, I've resigned in the past. I'm not saying I'm going to resign now. But, and she says in no uncertain terms, unless we get the DUP to agree to a deal, 
we haven't got a deal. And the signs are, as we record this on Planet Normal, that it may be that Rishi Sunak thinks he doesn't need the DUP in order to get a deal, the Democratic Unionist Party, which, of course, is the biggest party representing the still very significant unionist community in Northern Ireland. She's particularly robust on that point. Not, I think, because she knows Northern Ireland particularly well or because she's taken massive interest in the politics of that part of the UK over many years, but because she's a lawyer. She's a lawyer who really reveres the British legal system. And we talked a lot about her family background, her parents of Indian origin coming Mm. respectively from Mauritius and Kenya, hugely admiring the English language, the civil service, the rule of law. And as a lawyer, she is actually offended that even post-Brexit, what she calls a politicised and expansionist court in Strasbourg, that is, of course, the European Court of Justice, Mm. which isn't really a legal body. It is a political body, as anyone objective would agree. She doesn't like the fact that that still will hold sway in part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And her objection is really as a sort of jurisprude rather than somebody who is wedded to the unionist cause. And I think she came across very strongly on that point. The question is whether or not Rishi Sunak is going to go through with a deal that doesn't involve the DUP and what the Home Secretary then does and what dozens and dozens and dozens of Tory backbenchers who massively admire Suella Braverman then do in response to anything that she may do. It's a very tough situation. It's not just the DUP though, is it? Because of course she is the pin-up of the right and most particularly the ERG, the European Reform Group. And if anything, they're very likely to kick up rough should there be continued ECG oversight on goods produced in Northern Ireland and shipped to Great Britain. As you said at the top of the podcast, Liam, I mean, (laughs) as you know, your co-pilot has tried to get her small brain around many (laughs) large topics which completely baffle her. But I'm afraid I hear the words Northern Ireland Protocol. (laughs) Just the brain is like computer says no, no matter how much I force myself to concentrate because it's just amazing arcane detail, isn't it? But the fact is that Stormont remains suspended, doesn't it, while all this stuff is going on. So they really do need to sort it out. Well, well, Alison, you know me. I'm a professional broadcaster. I've never really been phased about going into television studios. But the one time when I really did feel rumbles in the pit of my stomach as I went on television was when I appeared on, not Question Time on the BBC, I've done that many times, but Question Time Northern Ireland. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Because in terms of political positioning and the way you label certain organisations, certain communities, certain parties, the knowledge of history you have to have as the kind of plastic paddy Englishman, Mm. Irishman coming across the water to appear. That was a tough one, but I came out, I hope, with my pride intact. I'm sure you did. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, 
commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Our latest Planet Normal stowaway is Jerome Booth, one of the UK's leading economists. Boasting a doctorate from Oxford, no less, and a wealth of international experience, Booth made his mark as one of the founders of Ashmore, a company which pioneered big-ticket investments across Asia, Latin America and other emerging markets, introducing pucker pension funds and insurance companies to high returns in some of the far-flung corners of the world. Now a full-time author and philanthropist, Dr Booth's been chairman of both Anglia Ruskin University and the Britain Symphonia. His latest book, written during lockdown, is Have We All Gone Mad? Why Groupthink is Rising and How to Stop It, published earlier this year by Biteback. I started by asking Dr Booth when the term groupthink first became popular. Well, it was invented in the 70s and it was basically deliberately to sound like newspeak, this sort of Orwell term. And it was really a few examples of it which made it famous, and in particular, the Bay of Pigs disaster in the Kennedy administration. And this was an example where people had just assumed that the thing was going ahead in a particular way, and nobody challenged some of the basic ideas behind it. So when the Cuban Missile Crisis came later, President Kennedy had worked out that there are better ways to make decisions and to ensure you get proper challenge. And since then, management consultants have been looking into groupthink and telling you how better to make decisions in boards, how it's really important in governance structures to have challenge at all levels. And it's often the idiotic, stupid question, which is actually the one that you really need asked. And that's important for diversity of views, if you like. But what this book is about is really mass groupthink. This is the idea that not just a few people, but millions of people maybe, can be completely wrong about something, which is testable and actually quite easy to demonstrate that it's wrong. And how can that possibly happen? And the reason it is able to happen is because people who are behind the groupthink have a huge discipline. They use moral reasoning. And anybody who steps out of line you know, is at risk from maybe not just being cancelled or or insulted, but losing their job. Now, Jerome, you are an Oxford PhD economist. The book has lots and lots of references, but it's very much not an academic book. It's written in a very readable way. But you quote quite often a contemporary US social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, and he says he's author of A Righteous Mind on Psychology of Morality. And he argues that educated people are actually more prone to groupthink. Why is that? Rationality is something that we evolved to help us explain an uncertain world. We don't like uncertainty. But our passions, if you like, drive what we actually do. And Jonathan Haidt does describe this rather well. He says that uh, you can think of your unconscious self as an elephant, which goes wherever it wants, and our conscious self sitting on top of it. And the interesting thing is that the more erudite and intelligent and uh, educated we are, the better we are at persuading ourselves that we are telling our elephant where it's going, despite the fact that we're not, and of convincing other people on their elephants. So it is about storytelling. The better you are at storytelling, the better you are at convincing yourself and others that you are actually rational. Whereas in practice, we're much less rational than we think we are. And we basically create reasons to justify what we've already decided most of the time. 
Part of your book's about social media, of course. I think social media has really sparked a lot of the phenomenons you discussed. Now, the religious reformer Martin Luther, he summed up the role of the printing press in the Protestant Reformation during the 1500s as the ultimate gift of God and the greatest one. How do you view the internet and social media? Do you think that they are mediums for human progress or do you think that their influence in terms of groupthink has been retrograde? Well, I think it's both. I think groupthink has been with us, you know, for millennia, mass group included. But what happens occasionally is that we have a new form of communication technology and our Stone Age brains can't cope with it. And hopefully we can learn to be a bit more tolerant in time to avoid the worst examples of the past. But the same problem has arisen that we have suddenly new ways of communicating. And in particular, I think we completely underestimate the power of the network changes. Random encounters were always important because it sort of challenged our entrenched views. Now that we can, if you like, more curate or have our networks curated for us, increasingly by algorithms, of course, that ability to check, have a second take and and think from a more challenging perspective has been lost. And so we're more prone to get, if you like, more tribal and we easily get sucked into groupthink and become less tolerant of those who don't share our views. I think where your writing was really strong, if I may say so, is when you talk about the way the tech giants used what you call continuous automated algorithms. So the news feeds that we receive from social media, from Facebook, they push us into silos. They reflect our previous choices. That undermines the opportunity for challenge, for random encounters with other ideas. So if you think of a newspaper, you might scan the pages of a newspaper and find things that you didn't know you were interested in until you start reading them. That's not possible on social media. That's a lot less possible with newspapers as they're presented on the internet. So wouldn't you draw a big distinction between the impact of the printing press and the impact of social media? Because the social media is supercharged to push us into those silos. It is different. (laughs) The basic problem that it's a new form of communication and we haven't learned yet how to be tolerant and how to cope with it remains. And I think you're right. What big tech is doing, if you like, is trying to create you know, profits for its customers. And when something's free, by the way, you're not the customer. The customers are those people, the companies that buy the data, and they want to be able to sell products. And the best way for people to behave for them is for them to be predictable. And and not just that, it's very small step from just predicting how people are going to behave to actually nudging them into behaving differently. And so on the one hand, we've got big tech trying to mould us and dumb us down in a sense as well. And on the other hand, unfortunately, there has been particularly, we've seen this through lockdown, a tendency of nudge units in government to use fear to also make us more predictable, uh, to nudge us into you know, certain patterns of behaviour. And I think one of the problems with the way that that has been done, I think the problem is we don't appear to have any ethical framework around it. And the easy tool to grab every time is the use of fear. And that's been overdone. And inevitably, it erodes trust in government. And actually, one of my whole chapters is on social capital and the essential need for trust of government and of people around you in order to enable an optimal social and economic environment. And there's been a lot of research on that. And I think one of the costs of you know, some of the recent policies by government has been to erode that trust. And 
The result is a kickback against government, a lack of trust, and it erodes democracy. It's very uh, worrying that you know more and more young people, in particular young people, are sort of giving up on democracy. And uh, many would actually just prefer a more a dictatorial approach to governance because they just want things done. And we've seen this, of course, particularly in the 20th century, but there's nothing new about the threat of totalitarianism, as we might call it, versus liberty. And this goes back two and a half thousand years. I mean, Plato, in some of his writings, uh, The Republic, most obviously, you know, wanted a very regimented state. And he thought the main, uh, the most important question in politics is who should be leader. And he thought the wise, I himself. And in practice, of course, it's not that simple, because once you become a leader, uh, there are all sorts of temptations. And it's no coincidence that at least nine of his own students became tyrants. His own two uncles were tyrants. And Socrates and his followers said, well, that's the wrong question. His was about holding power to account, wasn't it, rather than choosing the leader? That's right. Because it doesn't matter who you choose, it's a gamble. And the most important question is how you hold that to account. And that means challenge. And you think groupthink shuts down debate. You think groupthink makes it more difficult to hold power to account. It's much more difficult because the whole point of groupthink is to stop challenge, to stop debate. One of the strongest signs that there is mass groupthink is when you observe people trying to close down debate. When people say, oh, that's, you know, we know all about that, or the science has proved that, or, you know, the model tells us that, and, and, and just try to stop any challenge. We've seen plenty of that, haven't we? Let's talk about lockdown. Let's talk about groupthink in financial markets. Let's talk about groupthink when it comes to net zero. Lockdown first, Jerome. I know this book was born during lockdown. Were you surprised at the extent to which our response to COVID led to a spate of groupthink. How serious was groupthink during the COVID lockdown? Well, I think it was quite appalling. And what was apparent to me was there was nobody at the top of government who you know, took this at all seriously or really understood what was going on. There was a total absence of challenge to ideas which were really important. And just very, very simple things, conditional probability Bayes theory is highly relevant to vaccines and to testing for a disease. And it's very simple. If, say, 0.1% of a population have a disease, but the false positive rate, in other words, the number of people who don't have a disease but test positive is, say, you know, five times that, that means that the vast majority of people who test positive don't have the disease. This was, you know, seemingly ignored by the entire establishment to the extent that, you know, the, the number of people testing positive was even then used as the denominator. And this is not rocket science. This is very basic stuff. And I think the scandalous thing is not just that ministers didn't appear to understand this, but their civil servants didn't brief them. And, you know, I think that's the greatest failure, if you like, that we have a civil service that has become, I think, too full of its own ideas about how things should be done and not sufficiently providing real choices to their ministers, backed up by, you know, proper documentation and analysis. The overwhelming use of models, which, you know, basically garbage in, garbage out, a lot of them. The politicians did hide behind the science, didn't they? Completely unaware that the phrase the science is itself oxymoronic. It has a massive internal contradiction because science is constantly evolving. Yes. And I mean, I think one of the central themes of the book is a defense of the ideas of Karl Popper, that science is, is based on skepticism. 
It's based on testing hypothesis. And you can't prove anything to be truth. You can merely disprove. And the thing that happens in scientific revolutions is that if you find evidence which contradicts your theory, you have to reject the theory. But you have to also work out, well, maybe some of my assumptions are wrong. And it's a bit like, you know, Sherlock Holmes, if all the other possibilities, like your reasoning, you've checked, and it's still okay, and some of the other assumptions are okay, then it, you can identify the thing which it must therefore be that one of your assumptions is wrong. And that then leads you to question maybe an earlier theory, and so on and so on. And that cascades down until you get to something that you had thought was a self-evident truth. And you're forced to admit that that is wrong. And this process, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because scientists are wedded to a particular theory and they're no more rational than anybody else. They're just people who do science and they may be very intelligent, <laughs> but that, as we've seen with our elephants, is not you know, necessarily uh, the solution here. What we have is a, a situation where scientists, like anybody else, can argue a case and be wrong. And Einstein and many others have made it very clear that it's an ethical responsibility of scientists to present all the evidence that they find, which you know previously hasn't been around, that's relevant to their hypothesis, not just the things that support it. And if you don't do that, you're not a scientist, you're an activist. And this is a major problem in science, but it's also, I have to say, a problem in your profession, in journalism. There are, I think, far too many journalists where not much of it is very independent. Not much of it is really not just balanced, but but able to impartially you know, present facts and opinions to the audience who could then choose for themselves. And the moment you're not doing that, you're sort of verging into activism. So this is a, a series of problems. The good news is that a lot of these problems are fixable just by having appropriate challenge by people who really do believe the world is different at the appropriate level. That's the easy way to do it. And there are red teams, there are different methods of doing it. But again, another sign that there is groupthink is that those sort of mechanisms don't exist. And the other point about groupthink is that you don't need conspiracy theories. You don't need people to be evil for all this to occur. Because most people in a group thing don't realize they're in a group thing. They're actually doing things for very good reasons, which you know they think are fine. It's very difficult, therefore, to maybe change, it may look as if it's very difficult, but actually it's sometimes a pack of cards that if you actually challenge something, there can be a very, very clear break and, and people can you know suddenly see that maybe something's very wrong about the views. And many times, say in the media, you know, it's what's not covered that's, that's the issue here, not how things are covered, but what's completely left out because it's a, a part of an area which you know, is seen to be non-debatable. Just in the time we've got left, I wanted to talk about net zero, Jerome. You are chair of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. You chose not to go deeply into net zero in this book because you wanted to present more general concepts and you've written broadly about net zero anyway. But do you think, Jerome, that the debate about net zero has changed because of the security implications, the energy issues linked to the war in Ukraine? Or do you think there's not still a real debate about net zero? I'm afraid it's the latter. There isn't really a proper debate. I mean, whatever you think about the science of climate change, irrespective, the policy mix we've got is simply lunatic. It's not fit for purpose. It it won't reduce global CO2 emissions. At the moment, it's just uh, exporting jobs and CO2 emission production elsewhere. And we're doing it at such enormous cost that there's really very little 
possibility that what we're doing is not more damaging, <laughs> you know, than just doing nothing. There is no emergency, if you like. We have quite a lot of time to to think about this, and we should, you know, be prudent and have proper risk adjustment. But a general, and this is one example of a, a more general point that I make in the book, we've had a tendency to move towards safetyism and the precautionary motive. And this is, I would put it, a reckless thing to do, because by prioritising one thing and ignoring everything else, you actually stop defending yourself from lots of other costs and problems. We have this word emergency, which is a very emotive word, and, and the precautionary motive. This Again, it's sort of evolutionary in a way. When we saw a large cat, you know, when we were on the plains of Africa in a more primitive state, we just run. <laughs> That's the emergency. Uh, we haven't got time to think. With things like this, we do have time to think, and, and a lot more than just think. We should be doing more comprehensive cost-benefit analysis. Uh, we should be looking at the costs, for example, with lockdown, of the costs of the lockdown policies on people's health and the economy, not just the cost of one policy option i.e. not doing anything. Likewise with climate, likewise with a lot of other policy areas, we're not having comprehensive thought and looking at all the different costs and benefits for different people from different angles. And the timescales, you know, which are in most cases sufficient for us at least to think about things. But in coming back to energy, I mean, designing policies based on technologies which don't even exist is extremely dangerous in my view and very costly. And we are going to see, you know, this to change. To say that there's really a serious debate, there's still no really serious debate about this. And there certainly hasn't been in Parliament. We still have legislation, which is, you know, completely impossible to meet. We are not going to get to net zero, whatever we do. You know, perhaps we should be waiting for the technology before we come up with plan. If if we'd done what we were going to do 30 years ago, which was more nuclear power and a little bit more very efficient combined cycle gas, we would probably have reduced slightly more the CO2 emissions than we have. And we still have a lot of energy intensive industries that we've lost. You know, we wouldn't have these sort of energy crises. We've sort of also completely missed the point that a lot of the problem with the renewable energy is, is its intermittency and the inability for that to be consistent with private investment in any form of energy in the country. So we're heading towards a nationalization probably of their entire energy network. And we're still not going to you know, get anywhere until we've got a proper priority given to continuous supply. But anyway, we're getting on to a whole different issue. But I do think it's a very good example where mass groupthink is very dominant at the moment. And the irony is that it's supposedly based on science. And so it's quite easy if you actually investigate some of the, th- the claims to make it quite obvious that a lot of this is, is nonsense. A lot of the claims made is, is just not true. Well, Dr. Jerome Booth, you are the author of Have We All Gone Mad? Why Groothink is Rising and How to Stop It. Many congratulations and thanks a lot for joining us on the rocket of right thinking. Thank you, Liam. Well, it's not often, Alison, that you get references to Karl Popper and Bayes' theorem on <laughs> mainstream podcasts. Music to your ears, Halligan. But I have to say, you know, you know that I know Jerome Booth well. I actually read the book in draft. He acknowledges me as somebody who inspired him to actually write the book. I do think it's an important contribution by somebody who is extremely analytical, very much from an academic and investment and financial services background. But he has tried in recent years to 
broaden his writing, broaden his thinking to engage a wider audience. And I think he's got some interesting things to say. I'm reading the book, Liam. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a kind of planet normal handbook, if you like. I think listeners would really like it. I mean, we experienced, didn't we, the COVID group think and how even someone like us saying, how can it make sense for someone to be prevented from visiting their dying parent? How's that going to help? You were called out as someone who wanted people to die. And I agree absolutely thoroughly with Jerome Booth. I think that the group think on net zero, I think could be even more ruinous than the COVID group think. It's absolutely astonishing. And one phrase that jumped out at me from your interview with him was that educated people are more prone to groupthink. Now, isn't that interesting? And we had a listener last week talking about this allowing asylum seekers to claim that they're children. And our listener wrote and said that at her daughter's school, where the daughter's a teacher, all the educated teachers had said of some migrant who was claiming to be 14, oh yes, he's probably 14 because he just looks a bit gnarled because he's had a hard life. And the listener said that all the admin staff, less highly educated, had looked at the pictures online of this kid and said, oi, what's that bloke doing in year 11? So actually, sometimes the common sense of people who haven't been to university is a factor. But yeah, I think he's making a very good point. And also the fact of saying that in our trade, journalism, that people are increasingly activists going along with the groupthink, not asking the basic questions that are supposed to be the meat and drink of our jobs. I must say, Alison, as somebody whose life has been transformed by education, a lot of the smartest people I know are the least educated. Mm. And that sounds like a contradiction in terms, a bit like my quote about Northern Ireland earlier, Mm. until you really start to think about it. Look, Jerome Booth has never said that he doesn't want us to move towards less carbon-intensive forms of energy, off fossil fuels. He does want that. He just doesn't want us to make stupid, irrational decisions as he sees them. And he wants us to embrace new technology rather than trash the economy in order to achieve a target that, in his view, is based on a catastrophist view of the world. That's a very difficult argument to make. And he's made it bravely over many years. And it has caused him some difficulties. I know, but he plows on anyway. That's why I was keen to get him on Planet Normal, because I do think this is a book that, while highly analytical, has also leaped the chasm between academia and a broader popular audience, if it's given a chance. It's very difficult, as we know, to land a non-fiction book that does well if you aren't already you know, a well-known newspaper columnist or, or personality. He's made a good effort here, and I think he deserves to be heard on a lot of these issues. So as we are recording, Liam, there's been the announcement that Shamima Begum, the so-called jihadi bride, has lost her appeal against being stripped of British citizenship. We've already had Emily Thornbury, Labour's shadow attorney general, saying she would have brought Begum back to the UK to face criminal charges. Now, I've written about this case quite extensively, and I'm hugely 
relieved that the Special Immigration Appeals Tribunal has ruled against her having citizenship restored and being brought back here. You'll remember that when Sajid Javid decided to remove the then 19-year-old citizenship, that's four years ago, some 78 percent of Britons agreed it was right. But what we have, Liam, here, talk about educated group, think all the usual suspects now are kicking up rough, saying it's disgraceful and that she should come back and be exposed to British justice. But actually, one of the points I've been making throughout really is that we've lost a lot of faith, I think, in UK courts protecting innocent people against terrorists or those who hate our way of life as this young woman went to join this murderous outfit. I've got a lot of sympathy, not for her, but for the Yazidi women who were trafficked. Begum has claimed that she's been trafficked. She hasn't been trafficked. She went of her own free will, unlike the thousands of Yazidi women, some of whom were burnt to death. Now, just one fact here about coming back to face British justice. The Home Office revealed that of more than 400 British foreign fighters known to have travelled to Syria and returned home since 2012, only 54 have been convicted of an offence and hundreds more are believed to have gone off the radar and are highly dangerous. So our security services basically told this tribunal that they were still extremely worried about the security implications. And and you and I, Liam, knowing the media as we do, can imagine how quickly she'd have got her own... <laughs> Channel 4 series about how dreadful the institutional racism is in the UK. Now onto our listener emails, your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. This week, we've obviously had a huge amount of response to the censorship of Roald Dahl. Pamela says, leave Dahl alone. In my long career as a primary teacher, I must have read aloud each of his books in story time. I last read Matilda to a class of seven-year-olds who eagerly anticipated each session and positively reveled in their heroine's behaviour towards adults. Dahl knew perfectly well that children love the idea of getting one over on an adult and they knew they would never get away with it in real life. That includes the use of language, which is to the point. Of course, Augustus Gloop is fat. He gorges on sweets. Children live this naughty and seditious behaviour through their characters. Nobody was scared of the BFG because soon they'd all be getting their coats on and going home. They know what's real and what isn't. I feel this daft censorship is more for the publisher's benefit than sparing children's sensitivities. Hands off! Absolutely. Well done, Pamela. All hail, Pamela. All hail, Pamela. (laughs) (laughs) And Rose says, I've got two children. We go to the library quite a lot. It's become absolutely laughable that they don't actually have a normal range of books. There are no stories such as Shirley Hughes, or lovely Shirley Hughes, type of books about a simple trip to the beach. They all have an agenda, climate change, gender, sexuality, mental illness. When I wrote quite a polite email to the library asking whether they plan on separating topical books as they're all really heavy subjects for small kids and often extremely dry, I got a very prim response basically telling me to F off. Books are so important for children and what's happening now is depressing, to be honest. And finally, Liam, you'll love this. This is from Wendy, one from my own heart. Wendy says, 
if they come for the borrowers, yeah. Mary Norton, my children's absolute favourite and our absolute favourite, Wendy at Pearson Towers. I'll be at the barricades with my pitchfork before you can say botty burp. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. Here's one from Robert Allison. What a great interview with Peter Hitchens. Many thanks to the Great Planet Normal team. Growing up in Cardiff, both my sister and I benefited from going to grammar schools or high schools as they were called in South Wales. My school had superb teaching facilities, including science labs that were better than anything I saw in my son's school in Rich, Texas. Also, the staff were excellent and they kept firm discipline in their academic robes. That was the late 50s and early 60s. I come from what could be described as a modest, lower middle class background with parents who left school at 14. My schoolmates came from all over the city and included those from the poorest neighbourhoods near Cardiff Docks, as well as the children from wealthy suburbs. My primary school friend who lived on the nearby council estate achieved the highest marks in the 11 plus for the entire city. The 11 plus that I remember was a two-part exam with part one being an IQ test and part two a further IQ test plus separate tests in maths and English. So his achievement was truly remarkable and it opened the door to a first-class secondary education university and a job with one of Australia's leading corporations. One pupil of my high school, a modest fellow called Michael Moritz, went on to be involved in funding a little startup company called Google. Would that happen in the educational environment that prevails in Cardiff today? Having attended university in both the US and UK and observed the education offered my children in the US, I realised that I was the lucky beneficiary of a truly great education. As Peter Hitchens said, it's not only the grammar schools that were lost, but the ethos of excellence too. Yes, very well said. I think the education in Wales under Mark Drakeford and Labour has just gone into terminal decline, a great tragedy. By the way, just to apologise, because I think some of you are a bit concerned about the sound quality on the Peter Hitchens interview. We'll be making sure that that doesn't happen again. This is from Phil in Cornwall. Dear Alison and Liam, what colour eyes were you assigned at birth? And which blood group were you assigned? My GP practice has a woefully frustrating online booking system called Clinic, K-L-I-N-I-K. And when it comes to your sex, this is what it says next to the drop-down options of male or female. Quote, sex assigned at birth... This online triage depends on knowing your registered sex at birth, not your gender identity. If you are doing this for someone else, tell us their sex at birth if you know. We need to know this information so we can ask relevant clinical questions. What? My GP surgery seriously believes that sex is assigned at birth. I'm guessing those GPs who know this is not the case are the ones that have left the health service. When I rang and asked why this wording was chosen, I was told that it was following feedback from some trans patients who felt it would be more inclusive. I pointed out that it is hugely exclusive, excluding all those who believe sex is observed by your reproductive organs. It is beyond asinine that a GP surgery should use language that is not biologically correct and does more than make a nod to a dangerous ideology. I have half a mind to say I'm not happy with the blood group I was assigned at birth and now wish to change it and see what they say. 
This idiocy seems all around us. By the way, Liam, just quickly, you'll have noticed that Kate Forbes is a candidate in Scotland to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as SNP leader. And Kate Forbes is in trouble. When she was asked the question, is a trans woman is a woman? She said a trans woman is a biological male who identifies as a woman. And for saying this thing, which people have believed for, as you know, Pache, Jerome Booth, people have believed for millennia, centuries is now in hot water absolutely astonishing really we'll be returning to that smp leadership election won't we it's going to be very interesting and on that tartan bombshell that's it from planet normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reason views email of the week it's my turn pamela 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 So, Pamela, email us at planetnormaltelegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading to that email mug winner and give us your postal address. And a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will wing its way towards you. And I think we're going to leave the final word to John also on Roald Dahl. He said, who's next? The Wizard of Oz. Ding dong, the misunderstood person is dead. (laughs) No more witches, said Liam. They're very bad. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It cheers the co-pilot and me up no end. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, No Hitch, with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 